0: And bad art can ruin even the best interior. But how do you find art that's appropriate? The art world is strange and scary. Auction houses are intimidating. Blue-chip artworks seem to reach record prices every year. And art fairs are overwhelming and bewildering. The contemporary art scene can appear to be an ever-shifting morass of overnight discoveries and galleries that are either super snobby or here today and gone tomorrow. And then there's a problem of clients who all too often don't know much about art and can be reluctant to spend an adequate amount. One solution is to work with an art advisor who's skilled at dealing with the ins and outs of the gallery scene and who understands the fears and desires of collectors. But what exactly do art advisors do? And is working with one something that you should consider? I have with me today two women who work with collectors and designers to demystify the art world and to make it easier for them to find art they love and that is perfect for their homes. Laura Solomon founded her New York-based firm, Laura Solomon Fine Art, in 2001, and she specializes in post-war and contemporary art. Her firm handles every aspect of dealing with art, from buying and selling to shipping, insurance, and storage. Welcome, Laura.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Andrea Feldman Falcioni is an L.A.-based curator and art advisor who has worked with prominent collectors, including Michael Ovitz and Eli Broad, but also is happy to advise on a smaller scale and budget. Her expertise encompasses everything from traditional painting to video, digital art, and site-specific installations. Hello, Andrea. Hi,
2: Michael. Thanks for having me.
0: So this is a big topic and one that there's a great deal of confusion and mystique about. And I'd love to get a sense from each of you. And we'll start with you, Andrea. How did you get into this field? How did you become an art advisor? What's your background? And how did this evolve? Because I'm sure when you were a child, you didn't say, I want to grow up to be an art advisor.
2: Well, I mean, (laughs) I didn't necessarily grow up saying that, but my father is a print publisher. So we did actually grow up with...
0: Surrounded by the art world. You
2: know, there was art on our walls at all times. He worked with a lot of American minimalist artists like Sal LeWitt and Mel Bachner, Robert Ryman. So these were the things I was surrounded by as a child. And I... Did actually once ask my mother why my friends did not have art on their walls, like, like we did. I didn't exactly say, like, maybe I could help them out, but <laughs> you know, it was something I did ask my mother at one point because I just didn't understand why people had blank walls or they put up like posters with like sticky tape in their homes. So that was my beginning, but. I majored in art history in college, and then I did actually work at the Peggy Guggenheim Collection in Venice the summer after graduating. After that, I was in the right place at the right time for sure and met Riva Castleman, who was the director of the Department of Prints and Illustrated Books at the Museum of Modern Art, and she gave me my first job, and I have to say that really what set the groundwork for where I am now. I spent nine years there and had really incredible opportunities curating shows and meeting artists and working with incredible curators. After MoMA, I left and moved to California and worked for Eli Broad at the Broad Family Foundation, which is now a big museum in downtown LA. And then Worked with Michael Ovitz as his personal curator for seven years, which was an incredible opportunity. And Michael has a huge passion for art. And after I left Michael, after seven years, I started my business working with private clients. And that's where I've been ever since.
0: Fantastic. Now, Laura, what about your background? How did you get into this strange field?
1: I grew up in New York, and my dad was an endodontist in the city, and he had Alice Neal needing a root canal. And <laughs> so at the time, it's 1965, and my dad, she said, why don't I paint your portrait?" And my dad, very modest, said, you know, what do I, I don't need a portrait of me. And, but he ended up, thank God, saying yes. So I grew up with some art, but certainly with this incredible Alice Neal portrait um, of my father. Oh, great.
0: Yeah, which How is kind of
1: fun. But I, um, I studied art history in college, and one of my closest friends was the daughter of Paul Anka, the singer. And we were out to dinner with Paul one night and and he asked, so Laura, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I think I want to work at an art gallery. And so he said, oh, well, I can uh, put you in touch with two art galleries that maybe you can work with. The first paid internship at Gagosian and being there with Larry Gagosian way back when. So that was how I started. And I just absorbed absolutely everything that I could possibly absorb being in that environment. And then after I ended up working with Carl Appel, the Dutch Cobra artist, and I was in the studio with his wife and we you know everything from exhibitions at the Stedelijk Museum interfacing with the galleries and just everything that you could possibly imagine running the studios internationally and i did that for about 7 years and then i realized i was either going to be the expert on this one artist with such depth for the rest of my life or I was going to go out and do something else. And I ended up connecting with a colleague of mine who was opening up an art advisory on the Upper East Side and worked there for three years. And then eventually just people started calling me and I went off on my own and it's been over two decades. And yeah, so kind of fun.
0: Okay, so I want to get a sense. I think a lot of people be curious. Andrea, maybe you can answer this. How I think it probably is different for each of you. But how do you actually work? Do you... Have galleries that you're affiliated with or that you rely on, your their collectors come to you. How, I know people are mystified by this because I you know I used to work in the art world, and I'm somewhat mystified by it. So, you know, please help elucidate this
2: of course. well, i I don't work with particular galleries because you you really want to your client is your main. Focus. You don't. You don't want that to be clouded by a gallery telling you you need to buy this artist or that artist. Right. Or
0: your is really and all your of main, that stuff. Yes, really right. your main, main you focus. Want, right.
2: And most of my clients come to me via word of mouth. I don't have a website. I don't have. I mean, I have an Instagram account, but I'm certainly not advertising to be, you know, to get clients through my public Instagram account. And basically, I, you know, I do endless amounts of looking at art, as I'm sure Laura does, it consumes every single day and every single hour, whether I'm going out to galleries, which I try to do probably three or four times a week. And being in LA and in my car, it's very easy to be running to Trader Joe's and then you hit three galleries probably on your way to Trader Joe's so that your ice cream doesn't melt. But um, (laughs) I really do fit it into my day every day as I'm Leaving my home, I'm of course always looking at PDFs, which galleries send you all the time. And you can request PDFs if there's an artist you're interested in. You know they're having a show in two or three months. You kind of stay on top of the gallery to so you can get a first look at things for your clients, so that they get first choice if possible for artists that they're interested in. But it really does take a lot of time and effort to stay on top of everything that's happening in the art world. Because there's so much content out there and it takes a lot of know-how to kind of sift through it all and making sure your clients are making smart purchases.
0: So I'd love to get a sense from you how, because you work with a lot of interior designers. So I'd love for you to talk about what is the frustrations that interior designers have. Is it getting clients to spend money? Is it finding appropriate art? What, what are they? What are the dilemmas they come to you with?
1: Yeah, so backtrack, I would definitely want to say a couple things. So um, as an art advisor, something that, you know, people are always asking, you know, do you represent artists? Or, you know, you asked if we're affiliated with different galleries. And we are not salespeople. We're not. We don't have inventory. We're not trying to sell you artwork. We are your advisor. And we're truly... Our fiduciary responsibility is to you. Our ethical and moral responsibility is to you. And there is an organization, the APAA, which is the Association of Professional Art Advisors. And we have this code of ethics and that we do not have inventory because then you obviously Mm -hmm. you
0: have an incentive to sell that piece as opposed to something else that might be better. Exactly.
1: Right. Um, so I just wanted to make that clear because a lot of people are often, you know, do we represent artists and that kind of thing?
0: No, I'm glad you did. And another question which relates to this is then how are you paid? Is it do collectors pay you a fee? Is it a percentage? I mean, I, I'm sure it varies. Like as in the design world, you know, designers um, bill in different, various different ways. And I think it's all of that's fine as long as you're transparent about it. So how do each of you bill, Laura? How do you how do you get paid?
1: So. It depends on the project and the client. Some clients want to have you on retainer. Some clients pay you hourly plus commission. You know, it, you really have to figure that out in, in the beginning. You get an understanding of what they're comfortable with and how you would work. Typically for me personally, I charge, uh, so if a gallery, if we're buying an artwork, The gallery will typically give anywhere from 10, 15% discount. And we would take that discount and then add our commission, our percentage. So, in the end, the client usually ends up paying, I guess, retail. And for that, they get Mm -hmm. your access to the artwork, your advice, and your your oversee, your expertise, and probably a very smart, good investment. And you have somebody that is overseeing everything, all the logistics, all the shipping, making sure it's, you know, whether it's going, clearing through customs or it needs to be framed and it's a dark piece. So you really want to have that behind Optium, which is anti-glare, you know, all the different minutiae that are involved. We take care of all of that. For me personally, I don't like to charge for, installation for, I know some advisors do, for their time. I don't want to be bogged down by that. So I just charge my commission, which is prorated based on how much the artwork is. So let's say up to a 100,000 for each piece, I'm going to charge X commission. If it's, you know, if they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, I I mean, I'm not charging a 20% commission, but it really depends. I have one collector that he doesn't want to ever pay hourly. He doesn't, you know, that's how he works with interior designers. So you you just have that conversation with your collector and find out how they
0: like to work. Andrea, is it the same pretty much for you?
2: I work pretty much in the same way. I mean, I always work to get my client the best possible discount. And I usually have the gallery invoice my client, it, unless for some reason the client doesn't want the gallery to know who they are. But often, especially in this day and age, galleries not only want to know who your clients are, but often to get access to certain works, they almost have to submit a sort of a resume and to able to get access, which is the gallery and the artist prerogative, I guess, but it makes it very frustrating for newer clients who want to get access to works that are, you know, a lot more desirable per the art market. That doesn't mean they're going to stay that way, but they are at that moment. Um, And again, you know, occasionally I do do things hourly or work on a retainer, but primarily most of my clients' I charge a commission based on the price of the work. And again, like Laura, take care of shipping, packing, crating, installation, lighting, anything that goes along with the acquisition of the work.
0: Insurance, all that stuff. But it's so interesting. It's like hearing both of you talk, in a way – you're running parallel to designers, because I've always said, you know, one of the big problems is with people's idea of what a designer is, they think of a designer as a personal shopper. Oh, they get to, they have access to a Sherman, they get fabric, they can get this. But of course, it, it's so much more complicated than that, because, you know, I would say the designer is one who will tell the architect, the light switch has to go here, you have to have plugs there. They have to think about all this stuff and then install it all at the same time. And you guys, I think, are doing much the same in terms of the art world, because the, as we we're saying, the art world has exploded to such a degree. I mean, 50 years ago, if you lived in New York, you could probably go see every gallery in New York in a weekend or two days, and you would know everything that was going on. Now, that's you couldn't do that in two weeks. Um, and there's so much stuff out there. So, really, they're paying you for your, like we were saying, your expertise, your eye, your understanding of what they're looking for. And, you know, but this raises another point, point. Uh, and Laura, I'd love you to talk about this, you know. People don't always know what they're looking for. It's just the same with design they think they know. Right. So:
1: And that's my favorite part. That I love. Okay. so um, Okay, good.: I love people that know that they love art, but they don't know why they love it, they don't know what they love. They have no clue, but they're just they want to learn. So I absolutely. I love that endeavor. Um, I like educating them. I love figuring out. I can sit down with someone and vicariously sort of get into their headspace and their heart and understand how to connect people with the art that they're going to respond to. And I end up educating them on why they like something. And then they start to feel more and more comfortable, like, oh, okay, yeah, I understand. Uh, yeah, I like color, but I don't like it when it's like this, all right? You know, there are so many aesthetic and personal responses to art. And I love helping people figure that out, figure out what it is that they respond to, why they respond to it. So there's actual, because some people say, well, it's art. How could you possibly Explain or understand why you like this and you don't like this one and why you like Marcel Zama, but you don't like Talamadani. There are nuances that an advisor can help you discern the differences between what to most people would just seem like, you know, sort of quirky figuration or representation. And we can help you unpack that. And you learn about yourself you learn what you respond to. And the other key element is you may love certain artists and you may love certain art. That doesn't mean you want to live with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's another whole different category. I love certain work. I know that I am not going to want to have that much active energy in certain rooms or in certain in certain homes. And you really have to help people understand that. You might think this is super cool. Do you really want to live with that every day? That's a good question.
0: Right, there's a difference between art that's great for a museum or a corporate headquarters and a, and a living room. That's right. And
1: but some collectors want that. Like, so, so I have this one particular collector. Some collectors actively want you to be challenged. Whether you're sitting down at their dining table at a dinner, they want the unexpected. There's a huge sculpture in the living room. There's video art, there's hanging things, there's installation. But then there are other collectors that, you know, they may have the budget, but they are very reserved and they don't want it to look like a gallery and they don't want it to come across as, look at me. So you really have to get into the psychology of the client to understand how they want to present their, their collection.
0: Right and that brings up another point and Andrea, I'd love you to talk about this is um I think that there's been now that the art world has become so popular and art has become so essential to home design and interiors that people want to go for the big names you know they want to have their 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 friends and colleagues come in and say, oh, you have a Warhol oh you you have a you know whoever it might be that's of the moment you have a John Curran or or you know. And it's more about the name. I, I often joke that they should just hang a giant Prada label over their mantle as opposed to a work of art. And, you know, it, it, the art world has become so fashionable that certain names, certain artists, and this is not to denigrate their work in any way because they they, they can be artists that I love or maybe I don't love so much, but they're certainly respectable and, and talented artists, but they're they're they become names and the names overtake the work. So, you know, do you feel that you add to that sensibility or, because it's kind of inevitable, I suppose.
2: Sure. Well, sure. And sometimes, especially with newer collectors, you know, well, with newer, really new collectors, they probably don't even know what those names are, except for, you know, like Warhol or Jasper Johns or things like that. But for collectors that want to kind of have those big names, I think part of what our job is is to get them to look at a lot of things that are amazing works by artists that are equally as talented, but maybe just haven't at that particular moment gotten that sort of name recognition. Although, I'm so
0: glad to hear you say that. Yeah, absolutely. All,
2: and one of the best—I mean, I one of the things I love is. And because there are so many art fairs all over the world, there is not really a week that goes by that you wouldn't find an artworks, art fair some, happening somewhere in the world. But to be able, if the client has time, to walk through an art fair with them. And it doesn't have to be Art Basel, Miami Beach. It doesn't have to be Freeze. It doesn't have to be Tafaf. It can be any art fair and it really helps you as the advisor and the client get a sense of the things that they're drawn to. And then once you really get a sense of what your clients are looking for, you can show them things, yes, by the, you know, these big name artists, which at this point, really are very hard to get access to unless you are a big name collector. Mm -hmm. But you can show them works by artists that are equally as challenging, equally as beautiful, that they would love to live with and put them in that direction and also have it be a smart purchase. Laura and I are following the trends, not trends per se, but like where artists' careers are going, you know, who's showing them, who has a museum show coming up, who's getting picked up by Gagosian, you know, there are so many artists, especially in this day and age, that'll be showing at a small gallery, and unfortunately for those small galleries, a big gallery will look at that artist and say, wow, they're pretty incredible, which is at the point at which Laura and I are have been showing these clients' works and then gets picked up by Kogohin, and then the client's like, "Oh, you showed me that a year ago. Can you get me one?" and I'm like, "I can't do it now. I'm so sorry, you can't afford it and i I don't have the same kind of access so it's it's really an, an instance where your clients have to put faith in you that you are showing them things that are smart purchases and things that you know I'm sure that There's so much out there. There are things they're going to love.
0: Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening to the Cherish podcast. I'm Anna Brockway, president and co-founder of Cherish. We're taking a quick break to fill you in on some really exciting news. Cherish is launching our first ever in-person pop-up, the Cherish Art Gallery at none other than the famed Bergdorf Goodman. Open now through April, our gallery showcases 300 gorgeous pieces by our most beloved artists. If you find yourself in New York, I do hope you'll drop by. It's fantastic. And stay tuned for more announcements and even more offerings by visiting cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com. Cherish.com. And now, back to the show. I'm sure your jobs have only become more difficult because now the artwork is so global. I mean, not only in the sense that, you know, galleries like Hauser and Wirth and Swerner have galleries all around the world, but I think there's such an increased interest in artists from Africa and artists, you know, artists of color and, and uh, from the Middle East and all that. So, you know, how do you keep on top of all of this? Obviously, can't keep on top of everything. So, are there things that you focus on, Laura?
1: Well, so to that end, first of all, I would say that in addition to the number of artists and artworks and the globalization of the art world. Um, Andrea can also attest to this. The speed at which the art world moves is insane. So it's not only getting access. It's not only really searching through hundreds. I mean, we get hundreds of emails a day. I look at hundreds of works of art a day every day. So it's not just that, but if you get a preview or you know something's coming down the pipeline and you get this preview, you need to jump. It needs to be, you know, sent off, offered, on hold, and potentially purchased within 24 hours. So the key for us is educating and having the client get that confidence and level of comfort with knowing what they like, why they like it, so that when something does come, boom, they jump. So it's not just, you know, the globalization and how many artworks Mm -hmm. and getting access, but it's being able to, when it comes, you got to get on and you got to go fast.
0: Like, because I know when I do go to art fairs, I'm always shocked even early on. Good half of the works are already sold, like on Absolutely. the first day. It's kind Absolutely. of amazing. Absolutely,
1: and to your to your comment before about you know people that want the names, I think that also has a lot to do with they just don't know any better. So when you start yeah, it's with someone, they really, yeah, exactly. And when you have a collector that truly understands what they like, why they like it, and they start to get that education and they that knowledge, they're fine with going with something else. It's actually more interesting that they don't have the this, the this, the this. I mean, and I would say that, Andrea, you might, uh, you'd probably agree with me that certain collectors end up finding the advisor that
0: works for them.
2: That's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, you'll know super early on if you're right. not working with the right person.
0: And again, it's like a designer. If it's sure. not the right designer for you, hopefully, you figure that out really soon. You know, but I hadn't thought of that, but I'm sure that's true. And there are an increasing number of art advisors. Yeah, wouldn't you say?
2: Well, I mean, I'd say. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's still yeah. a fairly specialized
0: um, field. Well, yeah,
2: but the but, problem, you know, with, with art advisory is that unlike being a doctor or a lawyer or Many other things, you don't need a degree. So truly, Michael, tomorrow, if you wanted to be an art advisor, you just print up those Michael Boudreaux cards and art Start advisory and you're in business. And get your right. little right. handbag and, and right. put your little right. P- hire a
1: PR firm to get you all over social media or on magazines. And then suddenly you're an art advisor in, the, in demand. But that's just, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's but, all BS. But I think
2: that's why, you know, people like Laura and myself and other people that are in the Association of Professional Art Advisors, we are all vetted. We all have experience. We all have a set of morals and a way that we conduct our business and ethics. And So so you would
0: say that if somebody is looking to find an art advisor, that'd be the first place they should go.
2: Right. If they don't know anybody to ask, if they don't have friends that work with art advisors, the Association of Professional Art Advisors really has art advisors all over the world. And you could read a little bit about each person and you could contact them directly and... It's a way to start if you really don't have any contacts, which, you know, a lot of people don't.
0: And again, like design, it's a very personal relationship. You oh, know, yes. you have to trust your art advisor and you have to respect their taste and their taste should be somewhat similar to yours. Hopefully you're going to expand the, the client's taste and uh, knowledge, but, um, it, you know, it's something you have to suss out and you probably meet a couple that you don't like before you find the right one.
1: Maybe. It's, it's very frustrating because... Um, you know, I guess in the past, what, five, 10 years, everybody and their mother is like, oh, I'm I'm advising now. Oh, but I'm also a gallery. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I also curate. Oh, and I also... I am. What? That's... Yeah. 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 So, yeah, you got to vet them and know that they've been doing it for a while and that they actually... And the other thing is access, right, Andrea? I mean, these days, if you don't have a good reputation, galleries love to uh, offer work to me and probably to you as well because they know that our clients are our collectors are serious. They have beautiful collections. They don't flip and they're not interested. It's not market driven. And yeah, so that that has a lot to do with it. So you want to get somebody that has a good reputation and respect in the field because you know that those people are getting offered the work that you want access to.
0: And the best galleries, the good galleries, want their artists to have long, sustained careers and want their works to be in the right collections and collections that will end up going to museums or whatever. So they have a vested interest as well to represent the artist. So they want to work with the good advisors, advisors that they know and trust. I mean, I know sometimes it can seem a closed world to an outsider, but it, it's really about trust and protection um, from the gallery side and from your side. You're, you're protecting your clients. They're protecting their artists and, you know, working together. So, I want to get back to this question, Laura, about how you work with designers, because I think designers can be the people who are caught in the middle. And Andrea, obviously, I want you to weigh on this as well, but we'll start with Laura. You know, they have to do the client's taste. They have to deal with the art world. How does that work? What's their big frustration for, for designers when they come to you? Is it that their clients won't spend enough money, that they...
1: Yeah. A lot of the interior designers that I work with have collectors that are all rent clients that are not yet collectors, or maybe they are, but they really take it seriously. So it's not usually about convincing them to spend money because most of the, most of the designers that I work with, they have an art clause in their contract with their, with their clients. There's an art budget and a clause so that they know that if the designer is going to find artwork and propose artwork, that there's, again, the commission is all stated. It's very clear. But I do know that maybe for younger designers, maybe it's it's harder for them to get people around the idea that, oh, no, you actually have to set aside money for the art. But that's not typically something that I have to come up that I come up against. So the biggest thing for me is I I see designers not hiring advisors. And I think it's one of the biggest mistakes that they Mm -hmm. could make, not getting an expert involved. Because when you try to do it yourself, first of all, it's more than a full-time job keeping up with the art world and understanding the trends and being able to, to see the, the, you know, get a good sense of the landscape of what's happening both with markets, with galleries, with the actual artists, but getting a good art advisor involved. It's, it's adding a layer to this project. Like if you want to get a project published, you better believe that having great artwork is gonna get that done. Whereas if you go, you know, decoratory art,
0: it, it's just matching the sofa. Ugh. It's painful. Oh. Ugh No. And I will I will back you up on that, Laura, because when I was at El Decor, we saw we we saw bad projects, but we saw a lot of good projects that didn't have good art. They had bad art even. Bad I mean not more not mirrors. even it they're yeah, constantly mirrors, getting yes, the, the br- mirrors. Br- Get another mirror right. in there because they don't right, know what to right. do. And right, it's right. just
1: it, they're, they're you elevate the project by getting great. I mean, you wouldn't forget about getting depth and and whether it's rugs or fabric. Like this is art, and it's a major part of the equation. And this is people living with it and falling in love with art. And then there's also the actual huge financial investment aspect. Do it. So, I mean, for all these reasons, you got to get an art advisor involved. Don't try to do it yourself.
0: Right. <laughs> Good sell job there, Andrea. Would you agree with that in terms of? Oh, absolutely. Your I mean,
2: It's exactly what Laura said. It really this this is our full time job. We're not looking at sofas. We're not looking at vases. We're not looking at bathroom fixtures. We are spending 24-7. And, you know, like you were saying, what Laura was saying earlier, yesterday morning, when I woke up, I was looking at a PDF somebody sent me at 7 o'clock in the morning. And I thought, oh, a client of mine might really like this. I sent it off to them Sunday morning. They wrote back pretty quickly and said, we like the fourth one down. Is it still available? And by the time I went with my daughter to get bagels on Larchmont, I had made a sale. Exactly. So, (laughs) you know... It's not like I say, oh, I work for myself, so I'm going to do a Monday through Friday. I'm doing this when I wake up, when I go to sleep. And to add that on to what a designer might need to do is a lot. It's, you know, it's a full-time gig. And there's just no way around that. If If you're just helping your clients buy art that you see, you know, at one place or another, they probably are actually working with a gallery. And, you know, and then, you know, I don't know how that's working financially for that interior designer, but it's not doing your bet the best for the client. If you do get into a
1: conversation with an art advisor, I think it's very important to understand how it is best to work with that advisor for mm-hmm. each particular client. So, for example, sometimes it's better for the designer to say, Hey, and make an introduction so that I am working directly with the collectors oh, good point. and the designers involved for sure in collaborating and, and throughout the whole process, they could put things in renderings and do all sorts of things. But sometimes the interior designer just wants me as a source and they're going to have all the interactions with the the client. So you should really, you know, together you can figure out how best to interact with the client
2: because it varies. Not all my
0: right.
1: interactions are the
2: same.
0: That makes sense.
2: That's yeah. a good point. And I don't work with designers as much as Laura does, but I do think it's very important that the client's voice does get directly to the art advisor because I've had an instance where a designer keeps trying to tell me what the client is looking for, but they don't understand what the client's looking for. So I'm constantly pulling together works that get rejected because the designer doesn't understand what the client wants
0: right now that way case, the design becomes an impediment, yeah, so
2: I mean you, there is certainly ways you can work with a designer to make it equitable for all everybody involved, so that you can hear the voice of the client and really find them the, the perfect work and and the designer is right there every step of the way,
1: yes, to that end, I would that's a huge point that I'm so glad that we're bringing up right,
0: and I have to say often. I think your value is really something I hadn't thought about this, but like I will often go, like I remember going to the to the Whitney and seeing that little show of Solomon Torres paintings that they had about a year ago. And I thought, oh, I had not heard of him. I thought, oh my God, this is an artist. I'm really interested. I really respond to his work. But of course, by that point, by the time he was in the Whitney, Too late. If I had if way too late, probably three years too late, you know. Not we're not talking six weeks. We're talking three years too late. And you know, I can't keep up with the gallery scene. I try. I go to galleries. I go to museums. But, you know, so that's just so interesting. If I had known three years before about Salman I might well have bought a small painting if, if I could have afforded it at that point. And maybe then I could have, you know. So I think this is su- such an interesting point about you guys are way ahead of the curve, or at least you ought to be. That's your job. I'm not saying you can always keep up because <sighs> it's like a tsunami. But I think that that's so interesting. So I'd love to get a sense. I know, I know you get hundreds hundreds of emails every day, and I know you go to the art fairs, but what? how do you keep your eye fresh? How, what, what do you go for, either respite or inspiration? Where do you look? What, what's your favorite way to do it? Do you like to go to the art fairs? Do you go to museums? How do you keep, do you read the art magazines? How do you keep abreast and, but also keep fresh?
2: I think you do all of that, but also what I really love doing is, Talking to the younger people that work at the galleries, not the main director, but maybe like you them, mean that
0: person who sits at the front like desk the front and gives desk dirty gives, or, you, gives you those looks that are like don't yeah, approach I you. Mean, go you, know, you approach them
2: exactly, and because they're <laughs> often artists or at a level that they're they're friends with people who are more emerging in the art scene. And sometimes you get really interesting insights from them. That's one way that I think is super helpful. But I do think just talking to gallerists, talking, I mean, to everybody, I think that I'm have kept up with everyone I've met in my entire life. And I'm not kidding you. And I can draw on those um, people, you know, in whatever field they're in, but certainly having worked at MoMA for a long time and, you know, in the LA art world for a long time, there's a lot of people that cross your path. And I think if you keep up with them and continue to have conversations all the time, you're going to get a little nugget of something. I mean, you know, we get we get invited. I mean, one of the great things also about being in the art world is there's a lot of social aspect to it. So you get invited to dinners, and you might sit next to a collector you'd never met before, and you ask them what what they've been buying lately. And you might, you know, they might be things you've heard of, but often they're not. So there's so many roads to inspiration that can be achieved. And I mean, I have to say, and I'm sure Laura will agree, that we have the best job in the whole world.
1: Yes, definitely. I like, when I'm going to an art fair, that is not the time that I really discover because almost the entire time I'm spent with collectors. And when I'm walking around with, like we were just in Miami for Art Basel, I had four different collectors. So every time I am spending... What, two, two and a half hours with a collector walking around, and then I'm going around with the next one. And then, I, and each time I'm seeing different things because I'm looking with their lens. I'm looking and I end up seeing the work that I am interested in presenting to them and educating them about. So for me, it's, it's the not, it's being able to see the number of artworks that we see. If you see, if you have 40 emails and 38 of them are black figuration, which happens to be something that, you know, uh, is everywhere for the past couple of years. But then there's somebody that's handling it a little differently. Or maybe there's somebody that's um, working with landscaper. You just start seeing things. Um, I don't think seeing things with a fresh eyes is a challenge at all, it's pretty easy to cut through the, the crap. Sorry. You know, it's, it's, you can tell when it's quality. Cause if you're looking at, you know, 40 things and they're all very similar black figuration, there are a couple of them that you're saying, oh, wow. Okay. That's actually really interesting. Or that person, I don't like it. I don't want to live with it, but they're doing something different and that I want to take notice. And I'm going to make note of that. Right.
0: Right. And I think it's, it, one of the things that I think is so true is that, in the art world and this, in the design world too, is I think people, when they do get excited about something, they like to share the enthusiasm, whether it's a collector or another dealer or whatever. So, if you can get up the nerve to talk to that forbidding, young, beautiful person sitting at the front desk in the gallery, and believe me, they can be very forbidding, um, or somebody who works there or whoever, that I think you, once you, you know, cr- Scratch the surface of that very chic exterior, their passion, because they wouldn't be working in the gallery if they weren't interested, right? Or, and their friends are artists or that kind of thing. So, I think that's a really valuable um, tidbit of how to get some information going and find out about things you don't know about. Now, are there other suggestions you have for young collectors besides, besides hiring you guys, yourselves, or, you know, an art advisor? What, what would you recommend that they do? Go to the art fairs? Go to museums?
2: Yeah, go go to galleries, go to museums, take, I mean, also take notes, write down artists that are interesting to you, even if it's, you know, Picasso or Jasper Johns or whoever it is, just so you start thinking about the people that you're really drawn towards. There's still some art magazines that publish in print, so you can go through those. There are also amazing art books. Fiden does amazing kind of survey art books that are also really great resources for the beginning collector. Just, again, to kind of educate your eye and let you know what kind of work you're looking for. You might not like that particular artist's work, but you might like aspects of it, and that's great information to communicate either to an art advisor or even if you're going to galleries and say, look, I I love, you know, Hillary Pekus, but I can't afford or get access to one. You know, do you know an artist out there? You know, do you represent somebody like that or whatever it is? Just do a lot of looking. But I do recommend taking notes because then you'll forget.
0: Right. And with the iPhone, take a picture, you know, take a All picture right, and exactly. take a picture of the label, you know. Yeah,
1: I would just add to that, that um, so when it comes to looking, I think for the young people that are not as adept and and seasoned with looking at art, Andrea and I can look at, you know, a hundred emails. And if somebody says, you know, it's an artist we've never seen before, but we look at the image, we look at the medium and what it's made out of, and we look at the size, the dimensions. We can already imagine, oh, that's a 60 by 48. It's made with uh, oil. Pe-. We know what that looks like. We know what that would be like to be in a room with it. If you're a co- young collector, you don't know what that feels like. So to me, you have to forget about the computer, but get on out there and be in front of artwork. Realize that it is in a gallery setting or a museum setting. But, you know, they also have a lot of these um, uh, apps and technology that they can, if there's something that you like, you can actually get that piece and have it, you know, superimposed into your home, into your room. But I do think that it's super important for you to be in front of the artwork to understand what it's like to be in front of a framed drawing versus being scale, scale and texture and... Not just color, but like presence. So you need to you need to be in front of the artwork to yeah. get that seasoned eye.
0: Put a you, no one should put a collection together based on PDFs. Totally, you know, it's just going to be skewed. Now we've been talking a lot about contemporary art and artists who are of the moment and fashionable, for lack of a better word. But I think there's also something to be said for looking at work that's out of fashion, and I've seen that happen a lot of recently. You know, like. I think about six or seven years ago, we started seeing a resurgence of interest in ab- abstract expressions and post-abstract, expressions, but not the big name people. You know, there are a lot of painting because there were a lot of artists working at that time who didn't all become famous. And you know, and now it's, some now people are starting to collect, including Jeff Koons, old masters, and stuff like that. So, how do you guys deal with that at all? Do would you have collectors who come to you that are interested in looking backwards as well as of the moment?
2: I mean, I sometimes do, and I also think that a lot of contemporary galleries are actually starting to represent, you know, like that abstract expressionist painter from the 60s and 70s that wasn't given
0: mm-hmm, their kind of due at
2: the time. Spe- especially and, women. Especially women and, uh, right. and uh, you know, I, uh, many artists black of color. artists and right. other artists of color. And I, I think, you know, I do have collectors who look back and, you know, and I think, that it's really smart that a lot of galleries are also looking back to those artists that that haven't been duly recognized. I basically only work in the 20th and 21st century. I don't go back. I you know and then you know I do that's a specialty person, but... that's you know and This is what I specialize in. So if a client came to me and said, I want to buy, you know, I mean, I could probably help them with Rembrandt etchings, but if they want to buy an old master painting or something like that, I am not your person. And I will send you, you know, to somebody who is, because it's a big responsibility. Oh, there absolutely is somebody. There's a lot of somebodies and they're very good at what they do. So, or maybe not a lot of somebody. That's right. And you want to find that specialist.
1: Yeah. You want to find you want to find that specialist for sure. Yeah,
2: yeah, but you can't always be buying emerging artists. You know, there there's a lot of artists out there to look at and
0: well, a lot, a lot of artists from the '80s that I remember when they were new. Now they're re-emerging and people are taking a second look at them. And it's that's so interesting to me. I feel makes me feel I'm part of history. But um, you know, I think it's so great that they're being relooked at and seen in a different context. And I think that's really a valuable thing as well.
1: But I would also caution. People, and this is where you want to get the expert involved because we keep seeing now suddenly all the galleries are rediscovering because they're, you know, they're changing the canon from the white male abex. And now suddenly it's people of color and it's the women. And it's not that they don't deserve that now the credentials and the attention, but everybody is like, Oh, but look, I just found this gem and oh, there's this artist and we're representing this estate. And at a certain point, Just because it was once not given its due does not mean it deserves its due.
0: So, not every artist in the 50s and 60s was a genius.
1: Exactly. You know,
0: just as every artist today is not a genius.
1: And the galleries sometimes are putting that forth as if like, oh, look at this. and
0: It's a a marketing opportunity.
1: Exactly. And so that's another place where Andrea and I can cut through that fat, like in a in a heartbeat. We can tell whether it's actually good and we can tell whether, oh, there are museum acquisitions. OK, let's look at what those museums are and let's let's take a little good look at what this really is.
0: Because soon they might be a museum deacquisition. You know, I think we've covered a lot of territory here, and I think it's been very enlightening for me, but it's been very enlightening, I think, for our audience. And I can't thank you both enough for being here. So thank you to Andrea Feldman Falcone and also Laura Solomon, my guest today. And thank everyone for listening to The Cherish Podcast.
1: Thanks so much.
0: You've been listening to The Cherish Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.